morning, if you would turn your Bibles to Malachi <clears throat> chapter 3. Malachi was the last Old Testament prophet. He lived about 50 years before Alexander the Great did his thing, 400 B.C. The Word of God only came when God wanted to, to come. The miraculous only happens when God wants it to happen. You know, there, if you look at it, there's a huge gap in years from Noah to Abraham and Job. A huge gap in years, and there is no new Word of God uh, since Noah until Abraham. There's no recording of miracles. And then during the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God uh, gave prophecies to them, and they, were, they blessed their children and so prophesied doing that. But then after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, there's a 400-year period when the Hebrews were slaves in Egypt, and there was no prophecy from God. There's no new word of God, no new revelation. There were no miracles going on. And then came the prophets and the miraculous, happening down from the time of Moses leading them out through the judges and the kings over Israel and Judah and on in through the exile into Babylon with Daniel and Ezekiel and their return with uh, Zechariah and Haggai. And so they had word, a word from God and miracles happening now and then. But after Malachi in 400 B.C., there was no new word of God, no new revelation for 400 years. There was nothing miraculous that happened until John the Baptist came as a prophet, <clears throat> until the coming of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and His message of salvation and the mirac miraculous things that He did. And uh, since the New Testament times, there's been no new revelation from God. I don't care who, what anybody tells you, it hadn't happened. Nearly 2,000 years, and God has given us everything we need in the Bible for life and for salvation. And uh, so that's what's going on. In fact, uh, Malachi prophesied, in fact, of John the Baptist coming to introduce the Messiah. The prophet Malachi also spoke about marriage and divorce and raising godly children. But today we're going to look at what Malachi had to say about giving and stewardship, how we use the wealth God has given to us. You see, there's an outward appearance of giving. We want to look at the heart of the matter, at the heart of the matter. Here in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6, it says this, I, the Lord, do not change, but you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? How are we to return? God does not change. Numbers 23, verse 28 says, God is not a man that He should lie, or the Son of Man that He should change His mind. Does He not speak and then not act? Does He promise and not fulfill? Of course He does. 1 Samuel 15, verse 29 says, He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change His mind. God does not change. Hebrews 13, verse 8 says, Jesus Christ, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God does not change. His standards of righteousness are the same today as they were from the beginning. 
Our hope is not found in changing God to suit us, but in our changing to suit God. The Bible calls this repentance. Repentance. Turning. God promises you return to me and I will return to you. There's a great barrier because most people then, most people throughout the centuries, most people today do not see a problem. Most people see no need to change. Why should we change? Get along just fine. Second Corinthians 4 verse 4 says, The God of this age, the devil, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. We need to be faithful in holding out the, the good news that Jesus saves and calling people to repent and believe and be saved. And uh, But at the same time, there's a the truth there. Most people just don't act. I don't see any problem. I'm just happy the way I am. I don't want to change. So God told the people of Israel, you need to change. In verse 8, goes on to say, Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offering. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, then that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. One of the issues the people needed to change in, besides marriage and raising their children and many other things here, one of the issues the people needed to change was in how they used their wealth. They robbed God by not giving Him one-tenth. A tithe is an old English word. I've heard some people use it like it's just a general word for giving. It's not just a word that means to give. It means one-tenth. That's what the word tithe means. It started uh, in the Bible. The first comment on it is with Abraham about 2,000 years B.C. when he gave a tenth of everything he had to Melchizedek, Melchizedek the priest of the God Most High in Salem. And then his grandson, Jacob, when he left his home and uh, he stayed one night, used a rock for a pillow, that'll give you dreams, won't it? Well, he had a dream. He had a dream of a ladder reaching to heaven with angels ascending and descending up this ladder. And when he woke up, he said, God, wherever I go, whatever I do, if you're there with me, I promise you I'm going to give a tenth of everything I've got. And Jacob made that plea. Moses, in the law that God gave the people of Israel, in Leviticus 27, verse 30, he said, A tenth of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. But the Bible tells us it's not just a tenth, but it's the quality of what is given. There's an emphasis in the Word of God for the best and the first. Abel, from the very beginning, brought to God an offering of the fat of the firstborn, the best of the first. And Cain, it says, he just he brought some of the fruits of the land. He just, you know, whatever. I'll take some of these to God. 
Abel gave the first and the best. In the law of Moses, Exodus 23, verse 19, it says, bring the best of the first fruits. Bring the best of the first fruits. Our memory scripture that we said together in Proverbs 3, 9 says, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Now, not everybody's got vines and crops and farming like the old days. I like what uh, my pastor I had when I was in seminary, John Clark, he graduated from Nest City High School back in sometime, 68 maybe. Uh, graduated in 68. His father was the pastor of this church. They were the first ones in the parsonage. And uh, he says, oh yeah, that piano in the basement's been there since we lived there. Okay, so, and you know, he, he's got it all down. But I like what John Clark said when I was in seminary in one of his sermons. And he said the way he gives first fruits is, he said, I'm, the first check after I get paid, I'm going to write it out to the church. That's first fruits. That's how I'm going to symbolize that since I don't have a crop or fruit or grain or whatever else going on or animals to offer. Uh, and that stuck with me all these years since that time. The Bible tells us to give a tenth, to give the first, to give the best. But the truth? <laughs> oh man, you're not going to like this. That's not enough to please God. That's still not enough to please God. The Pharisees of Jesus' time, Jesus said about them in Luke 11, verse 42, you give a tenth of mint and dill, but neglect the weightier matters of the law, justice, and the love of God. You should have practiced these without leaving tithing undone. In other words, many Jews in the New Testament times gave a tenth, they gave the first fruits, they gave the best. They did all these things, but they didn't get to the heart of the matter. They didn't get to the heart of the matter when it came to giving. What is the heart of the matter? The very basic things is our relationship with God. First John 3, verse 23 says, This is God's command to believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another. That's the command. That's what you need to be doing most of all. You need to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. Another one's like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. What is the heart of the matter? Believe and be saved. Forgiven of your sins. Born again. The Holy Spirit within you. And then loving one another. Fulfilling these great commands. And if you believe and are forgiven, then Romans 5, 5 comes into play. God has poured His love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom He has given to us. Do you have a heart full of love? A heart full of love when God changes a person to live with a whole new inside, a whole new outlook, a whole new motivation, a whole new heart of the matter. A heart of the matter. How does that affect giving? One of our giving verses is 2 Corinthians 9, verses 7 and 8. It says, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each one to do what he's made up in his mind to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. A cheerful giver. One who gives cheerfully, gladly, willingly, out of freedom of this new relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. As Jesus said in Acts 20, verse 35, it is more blessed to give than to receive. 
is more blessed to give than receive. An unsaved person or sinful nature cannot understand that. Can't even begin to comprehend that it would be more blessed to give than to receive. We think, well, no. Wow, it's better when you get something. Wow, that's exciting. But it's more blessed to give than to receive. The Pharisees were giving one-tenth, the first and the best, but they gave it reluctantly, I believe. It hurt them to give. There's a phrase some people have used, give until it hurts. That's not biblical. That's not biblical at all. Give until it hurts. It hurt them to give. They hoped, also I think, they hoped for a return from God. They wanted it back, plus a little extra. Many pagans in the ancient world went to worship at pagan temples for that one reason. They're, they're going to the Temple of Baal. It said one of the descriptions of ancient idolatry was banks. That it fed greed, a person's greed, to go worship at pagan temples. They came and worshipped and gave at the Temple of Baal, expecting to be richly blessed in crops and flocks. You see, Baal was known as the storm god. You worship Baal, he'll bring the rains. Man, it's going to grow. And you're, gonna, you're just going to have a big old harvest and it's going to be exciting. And because they believed Baal was the storm god who could make them rich, God said, Elijah, I want you to pray. And Elijah prayed for three and a half years and there was no rain that came on the land. Baal doesn't control the rain. Elijah said, you can't manipulate God or any God you want by uh, thinking that you, he owes you something here. And for three and a half years, there was no rain on the land until God sent it. If giving is motivated by a secret greed, it's missing the whole point. Giving should be motivated by cheerfulness, gratitude, love, joy, Thankfulness. The heart of the matter makes all the difference. The heart of the matter makes all the difference in the world. What's in your heart? You outwardly conform to doing what is right, but the inside doesn't match up. And you need to get to the heart of the matter. It's like when it comes to being physically attractive. You know, the common conclusion when it comes to physical attractiveness, it has to do with symmetry of facial features, no flaws for women having good proportions and curves, using makeup right, wearing nice clothes. For men, it's about height and build and uh, strength. But over the years, over the years, I've seen people with all the right outward qualifications for attractiveness, but they aren't attractive. They're not appealing. Well, they are to the eye at first glance, but they're not. Why? The heart is lacking. The character's bad. Their behavior is miserable. Their soul is dead. And it shows on their faces. They might have what should be an attractive face, but there's no cheerfulness there. But I've seen others over the years, too, who might be outwardly plain, Yet they shine beautifully because of the joy and the love in their hearts. 
I've known folks who are old and gray and wrinkled and very average features, maybe even homely features, but they're beautiful. They're beautiful and handsome because their hearts are filled with the Spirit of God. It shows on their faces joy and peace and love. As Proverbs 15, verse 13 says, a joyful heart makes the face cheerful. Makes the face cheerful. And that's the same when it comes to giving. When it comes to giving, it's not just the outward appearance. Outwardly, someone may give a tenth. They might give the best. They might give the first. But is it from the goodness of their heart? Is it from a desire to please God? Wanting to bless the lives of others. There's a phrase in use. Man, I, I don't know how long it's been. Not quite all my lifetime, but you've probably heard the phrase, the prosperity gospel. Prosperity gospel. That you give and God will bless you in return. And it's loosely based on Scripture and the Bible. The problem is that many approach this truth with a heart of greed. I'm giving so I can get. It's a self-centered heart. It's what's in it for me. But that is not the kind of heart God wants you to have. On the outward appearance, it looks like Malachi 3.10 speaks this way. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Test me in this and see if I will not pour out so much blessing you won't have room enough for it all. That's a promise from God. And it's a scriptural promise. Proverbs 3, 9 and 10 that we talked about. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty. Your vats will brim over with new wine. Isn't, isn't that talking about the prosperity gospel? It gets used that way, but I believe it's twisted when it's used that way. These scriptures are true. But there's a heart of the matter. What kind of heart should you have? Not a selfish heart. But a heart that trusts in God, that waits on God, that loves people, that desires to show God's love to others, a heart filled with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, the heart of the matter that shows on our faces, that shows in what we do and how we do it. Malachi 3 verse 10 says, Test me in this and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven. King James Version translated it the windows of heaven. And we'll get back to that in a moment. But it's used in a couple of obvious places in the Old Testament. One is with Noah and the ark. Now when the floods came, God threw open the floodgates of heaven and He opened up the floodgates of the deep and flooded the world. It wasn't seen before. No one had seen it before. It was hidden, but when it happened, it was big time. The other place it's used has to do with the, the time of the prophet Elisha. The kingdom of Israel, Samaria, was under siege by the Arameans out of Damascus. And they'd been under siege long enough or they hadn't prepared well enough that they were running out of food. And you think uh, it costs a lot to go to the grocery store today. Their, their prices were out sky high for food. It was so bad, people were even cooking and eating babies. And the king was so 
fed up with it. He went to Elisha and he says, you know, this typical worldly attitude, it's not my problem. I don't need to repent. It must be somebody else's problem. God, why don't you do something about it? Elisha, you're the prophet of God. It must be your fault. And the king goes to him in a rage. This needs to stop. And Elisha said, tomorrow, food's going to be really cheap. And one of the king's assistants says, that can't happen, not even if God were to open the floodgates of heaven. And God opened the floodgates of heaven. The enemy army disappeared and they left all their food and everything, and boom! They ran for home and the Israelites had cheap food. The floodgates were open in abundance. They didn't see it before. But God did it. The root word for this Hebrew word translated as floodgates or windows is a word that means ambush. It means to lie in wait. The root word of it is kind of like someone lying in wait to ambush somebody. And it carries three ideas with it. The first is to be hidden. You know, someone in ambush, lying in wait, I'm hiding. Nobody can see me. Not, they don't know what I'm doing here. I'm not seen. When I was five years old, a family moved to a new place, Johnson County, an acre of land. We had woods on three sides of us. And on the other side, uh, across the gravel road, was a cornfield. Our closest neighbor was 100 yards away down the gravel road. And so being a lonely kid who had uh, not too many months ago been in a suburban neighborhood, I said, Dad, my dad was out working in the yard. I said, Dad, I want to go down and see if the neighbor boy wants to play. Dad said, no, you stay in the yard. You stay right here. I said, Dad, I want to go down the road to see if the neighbor boy can play. He said, no, you stay here in the yard. And he got busy with the work he was doing because he had a lot of work to do. And I snuck off down the road. And I went on down the road, and I got down to the neighbor's place, where I thought, he's coming after me. So I hid. I hid in the weeds. Five-year-old Russell's in there. I'm hiding in the weeds. I see him walking down the road, all 100 yards of it. And he comes walking by. He doesn't see me in the weeds, because I'm hidden. And he walks on by, and he knocks on the neighbor's door. And he, I see him talking with the neighbors. No, he hadn't been here. And he heads on back home, and he walks by me. He doesn't see me hiding in the weeds. And uh, I was smart enough to just surrender. You know, I popped out. I said, Dad, here I am. And uh, so he, he paddled me all the way home there. And I learned to trust my dad that day. I knew that he said what he meant, and he meant what he said, and he would do whatever it takes to fulfill what he wanted to see done there. And uh, so... I was hidden, and that's one of the ideas of this idea of floodgates, of windows, just like an ambush, it's hidden, it's hidden. And the second part to it, lie and wait, is that you've got to wait for it. This is something that takes patience, you have to wait until just the right time. If you've got an ambush to spring on somebody, you spring it too early, you lose the effect. If you wait too late, you lose the effect. You've got to wait until just the right time. And that's the meaning behind this word. And the third part of it is that the results are overwhelming. 
An ambush sprung at the right time ends up in a slaughter of the enemy. And in the same way, unseen, hidden, waiting for the right time, it results in abundance and overwhelming results. King James translated as windows, not about what we think of as glass windows, but more like the idea of wooden window shutters. Wooden window shutters. And when you got your shutters closed, the outside world is hidden from view. And in fact, it's probably dark where you're standing inside. You can't see much what's going on there. It's hidden. It's hidden from where you are. And it does not change until the shutters are flung open. And when the shutters are flung open, the light comes in. You can see what's going on outside. You see what's going on inside. And the previously dark room. Floodgates has got the same idea. If you can picture a dam holding back a body of water, and you've got the floodgates that allow some water out, but they're closed, and you're standing down at the bottom of the dam, you can't see how big the lake is. You can't see how much water is out there. All you can see is the dam and the floodgates there. And when they are open, what was hidden before comes pouring out in a great rush. Might be pretty dry where you're standing, but when the floodgates are open, the water comes gushing out. So the final result is hidden, and you have to wait for it for the right time. And when it happens, it happens in abundance, overwhelming matter. So what's the heart of the matter? Trust God. Trust God. Be grateful to God from the heart. Give a tenth cheerfully. Be generous with people. The results may be hidden. They might be unseen. The blessings are not likely to be immediate. You have to wait for it. You have to be patient until the right time. You may even have to wait until you get to heaven to find out the true scope of what you're giving resulted in accomplishing. Be sure what is accomplished will be overwhelmingly abundant. What's the heart of the matter? Love God with all your with all that you are, your mind, your words, your actions, your time, your family, your wealth. As 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58 says, Give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. The floodgates may stay shut for quite a long time. The window shutters may remain closed longer than you'd like. And the future is hidden from you. But wait for it. Wait for it. Be patient. It's the right time. God's going to open up. Galatians 6, verse 9 says, Do not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Hidden. Wait for it. Be patient. When the floodgates fly open, It'd probably be at a time you don't expect it or I don't expect it. But when they fly open, the results are overwhelming. That's why Jesus said in John 10, verse 10, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Abundantly. This is what God offers us. Not a prosperity gospel of dollars and possessions, 
but an abundant life that is so overwhelming in what He can do in loving us and working through us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank You for Your kindness and goodness to us. We thank You for Your promises that You make. If we trust You, You will bless greatly. Lord, uh, we know that the results are great. Help us to be patient for Your acting in our lives. Father, we thank You for loving us, giving us uh, so much. Help us to live our lives to please You, to glorify You. Amen.